Hello, and welcome to Doc Tell Me More, my podcast where I take an in-depth look at documentaries. My name is Mike, I am your host, and this is episode 39 of Doc Tell Me More. And as always, thank you so much for listening, whether you're a first-time or a long-time listener. Again, you can follow me on Mastodon, my handle at Mastodon Mastodon, is at Doc Tell Me More, at Mastodon. Dot world. I've completely moved everything from Twitter to Mastodon. So uh, you can check out my, my profile there where I post a lot of you know different facts from uh, not just this current series on the war, but also all my other uh, documentary topics that I've talked about before. So I try to post a few times a day just to you know throw some random facts out there. Uh, interest me and hopefully interest you. And also the link to the podcast is there. Obviously, you have the link. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this right now. But the link is there as well. So if you're on Mastodon, I'd appreciate a follow. I typically follow back pretty much anybody as well. Um, And pass on to your friends, families, um, the people you influence in your life. I would appreciate that. So again, if you haven't uh, listened to Doc Tell Me More, if this is your first time listening to an episode, what I do is I watch a documentary and then I just dive into the topic a little bit deeper to figure out what happened, you know, you know, or just to figure out if the documentary told the whole story, dive a little bit deeper, or sometimes talk about uh, some things that weren't brought up in a, in a documentary. And I Documentary is just one of, a passion of mine, and that and this podcast is just an extension of that passion. So each episode, I kind of go through it and really talk about, you know, kind of the, the topics and and what happened, and and uh, just uh, go from there. And I just the, the goal is I hope you find something interesting um, from this podcast that you've learned, and uh, I, I learn a lot from doing my research. That's one goal. And the other goal is that you can learn. So I hope you learned something this episode. And like I said, this is episode 39. And this is our sixth and final part of Ken Burns, The War, which looks at World War II and its effect on uh, the world. The documentary itself really focuses on four towns in the U.S., but it obviously covers, it can't just focus on those four towns. It focuses on the, the, how the war affected the whole world as well. So we'll dive right in here to part six, which is the last one, which takes us through the end of World War II. Um, in the last episode, we ended uh, in, in the beginning of 1945. We pretty much focused on the Battle of the Bulge and then the Battle of Iwo Jima, which brings us to the spring of 1945. Um, with essentially at this point, uh, the war is clearly in the Allies' favor. Um, you know, Italy has been out of the war for almost two years, and Germany and Japan are obviously they're going to lose. Their hope is that it will not be unconditional surrender, which is what the Allies have pressed for, but rather it will be some sort of armistice with better terms. And so that is where we are at. And where we will pick up. Um, something that I, I just found it found oh interesting is not the right word, but that's an overused word. But curious is last episode pretty much just focused on those two battles I mentioned, the Battle of the Bulge and the Battle of Iwo Jima. So we could really dive into those. 
this last episode really crammed a lot of different things into that. And I found that curious in why Ken Burns did that. I really feel like a couple of these things they talked about could have gotten pushed into the last episode. And I could have really expanded on those things. So instead, there are a lot of things I'm going to actually kind of talk about this episode. I don't want it to drag on, you know, super, super forever. So I might not be able to go as in-depth as I normally like to do on some of these topics, but we'll still dig in a little bit on the different variety of topics we have. So anyways, without further ado, uh, let's do Ken Burns' The War Part 6. The Allies are on the path to victory, but can they get... uh, the unconditional surrender that they desire. So let's uh, jump right into the European theater and what's going on there and and discuss the Battle of Berlin. And so as the Allies here, they've invaded Germany. We talked about that the last couple episodes. They're marching towards Berlin, trying to take the capital and, and essentially finally end the war and kick Germany out of the war so they can focus on Japan. Again, Berlin um, only had 3 million people at this point in time in the war. Um, And that's down from their pre-war population of about 4.3 million. Now, at this time, you had the Western allies like the U.S., Britain, France coming from the West, trying to take Berlin. And you had Russia coming in from the East. And the Germans were absolutely more scared about the Russians and the Western allies because... Um, it's quite clear that they would be treated better um, as prisoners of war on the Western Allies as, as opposed to the Russians who were, they were essentially scared they'd be killed by the Russians if they were captured. So a lot of the generals pushed Hitler to reinforce troops in the East since the Ardennes offensive was not working as it was pushed back by the Battle of the Bulge. And they wanted to install the impending Russian attack, which they knew was coming, Hitler instead took some of his panzer divisions to try to take the oil fields in Hungary, which ended up failing. Um, So eventually what would happen is that the Western advance would stall, not stall, but the Russians would actually advance quicker uh, than the, the Western allies and they would actually reach Berlin first. And so this battle of Berlin, that is this final climactic battle of the Eastern Theater would be between the USSR, which had about 2.3 million soldiers, and Germany, which had about 765,000 soldiers. So the Soviet offensive towards Berlin actually began January 12th of 1945, as the Battle of the Bulge was ending, and they pretty much took 19 to 25 miles a day, um, and they quickly reached just east of Berlin. Now, Stalin, or Stalin, Uh, the leader of uh, the Soviet Union, really pushed his army to move this quickly because he figured that any territory he captured, he'd be able to keep after the war. And so, and he really wanted Berlin. Obviously, that was the capital of Germany. It would give him a lot of prestige for taking it, but also because it would give him access to different things like the German nuclear program. So they were really just trying to take as much territory as possible and really, the Western Allies at this point had kind of had figured that they were not going to reach Berlin first, and so and they didn't kind of press that issue. So, in preparation for uh, the invasion of Berlin, General Henrique of Germany intensified fortifications around Berlin, which included turning a floodplain into a swamp, 
He had a ton of defensive encampments, trenches, bunkers, and extensive weapons. Now, as Germany was preparing for this, uh, President Franklin Roosevelt on April 12th died. And that really gave Hitler some false hope that um, because of this death, that would cause dissension in the Allied ranks and maybe allow them to force a separate peace. Obviously, we know this is just ludicrous, and that kind of tells you how delusional Hitler was um, at this time. But by, um, you know, April 20th, so Hitler then had his birthday on April 20th. But by April 22nd, Hitler knew the war was lost as Russia was closing in on Berlin. Um, and he said, he told his generals that he would stay in Berlin until the end and then he would kill himself. And by April 24th, the city was encircled. And also on April 25th, not in Berlin, but in a different part in Germany, the Soviet and U.S. forces linked up and it essentially cut Germany in two. So at this point, like I said, Berlin is surrounded the city had about 45,000 soldiers to defend Berlin, uh, which are pretty much a lot of older men and, and young boys from various outfits. It was not the fighting machine that had taken over Europe just you know six years earlier. Um, on April 30th, the, uh, the Russians launched an attack on the, the Reichstag, which was the former home of the German parliament. Um which was actually burned by the Nazis in 1933. And pretty much fierce hand-to-hand, room-to-room combat ensued, which the Soviets finally took actually control of the building. It took them three days to do that on May 2nd, and they planted their flag. So if you look at any picture of uh, Russia taking Germany, you know, taking Berlin, there is this famous picture of a Russian soldier planting a flag on top of a building. This is at... um, at, the, at this uh, building. Um, so May 2nd, they, they had taken the city, which pretty much caused the general um, weedling in charge of the Berlin defense to surrender, and they surrendered um, on May 2nd. Now, Hitler was not around because on April 30th, Hitler killed himself. He shot himself, and his body was cremated. Um, but by this point, it was over. And Berlin, uh, after they surrendered, was pretty much decimated. Hitler had ordered the food supply destroyed, half the bridges blown up, and just many pumps were just no longer working. Subway stations were underwater as well. So it was just a devastating, devastating, or devastated city. Uh, Even though Berlin surrendered May 2nd, the German instrument of surrender, which they finally... um, uh, assented to unconditional surrender was signed on May 8th, which is officially VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. So the war in Europe was over, Germany surrendered, uh, and the Nazi empire that Adolf Hitler said would last a thousand years was done after just 12 years. So um, pretty much, I mean, there's really not much more to say with the Battle of Berlin than that. Um, again, pretty much once the Allies landed in Normandy in 1944 and, and, and put a foothold in, um, it was inevitable they would fall. And uh, the Russians were able to take um, Berlin and Germany surrendered. And it was at this point that then the Allies could uh, focus on Japan. But before we talk about the Pacific Theater, I, I do want to take some time and just talk about the Holocaust 
And I kind of really have, have struggled to figure out how to talk about the Holocaust. Because that's obviously an important part of World War II. But I, I really cannot do the Holocaust justice. I actually just watched the, a documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust. It just came out this year. I watched it uh, about a week ago. It is another Ken Burns documentary. But it is just a great overview and detail of how the Holocaust happened, why it happened, and what happened. Because there's still a lot of things we really don't know about the Holocaust. And so I could probably do a whole episode on the Holocaust. But I definitely just do not feel an expert enough to give it justice. So really pretty much what I'm going to do here as I talk about the Holocaust for a few minutes is I just really want to state kind of just the the plain facts here because I, I just think the basic facts are just appalling in and of themselves. And then I really encourage you to watch that documentary, The U.S. and the Holocaust, and even do your own reading because it's just a horrific time in history. And even though I've known about the Holocaust, you know, since I learned about World War II, it's still galling and and appalling that it happened. Um, So first off, the thing you know about the Holocaust is is it did happen. There's a lot of Holocaust deniers out there, um, which is sad because it happened. People that deny it are ignorant and just deny facts. Um, there is so much evidence from people that survived it to the U.S. soldiers that liberated camps to just paper trails. There's just a lot of physical evidence that happened. So it did happen. So the people that denied it are just idiots. It was considered that the final solution in, in, in Germany, quote, said, the Jews were to be annihilated by mass murder and forced labor. Overall, 6 million Jews were murdered by the Nazis during World War II. Uh, there were 9 million Jews in Europe before World War II. There were only 3 million left after that. Think about that. Two-thirds of the Jewish population was murdered in just about six-ish years. I mean, do you, I mean, to be able to kill 6 million people, essentially a million a year, that's a lot of work. I mean, it takes a lot of organization to do that. And if you just wanted to just kill as many people as possible and just walk in and just start shooting up Jew, uh, Jewish people or just any, not just the Jewish people, but any sort of population, it, it takes a lot more than just going around and trying to, to just randomly kill people. Like to, to kill 6 million people, particularly a specific population like the Jews, it takes a concerted effort, which just shows you how sick the Nazis were. Now, it wasn't just Jewish people that were targeted by the Nazis. They looked at the Soviets, who were the communists. They killed 4 million Soviet POWs. They killed 2 million non-Polish, non-Jewish Poles. They killed disabled people, Jehovah's Witnesses, other religions they didn't agree with, and homosexuals. Uh... 13 million Soviet civilians, approximately 3 to 3.5 million Polish Jews were killed. Um, Because they they were trying to purify their race is how they called it. And you had to be from their selected gene pool 
to be part of the German Reich. Anyone with three or four Jewish grandparents were, were picked for extermination. Um, they put medic they, they perform medical experiments on people, especially twins. Um, they, if Jews were not murdered, they were fired from their jobs. Their money was taken. Their property was confiscated. Um, but and they just put the whole entire power of the state behind this. And according to one historian, this was the first time that a state had thrown its entire power around the idea of exterminating an entire race. Only 5,000 of the over 100,000 Dutch Jews survived the war, and only 10,000 of the 75,000 Greek Jews survived the war. Now, now why, why did it happen, you might be wondering. Um, Anti-Semitism has just been a part of history even before the Nazis. It, it goes back centuries um, thousands of years, even that people have, um, just been anti-Semitic now, particular, and so that, so the Nazis are able to kind of play on these anti-Semitic views. Now, Hitler's particularly and the other Germans and Nazis blamed the Jews for losing world war one, even though they were defeated in world war one, but they couldn't comprehend. And the German people couldn't comprehend how they lost that war. And so Hitler blamed the Jews for losing the war, and the Jews were viewed as, viewed as blood enemies of Germany. Hitler actually said in 1931 that if the Jews started another World War II, another World War, it would lead to their extermination. So he was already planting seeds ahead of time before he invaded these other countries starting World War II that it was going to be the Jews' fault. Now, some of you might be like, well, why, how come they just didn't leave? If you were Jewish, why didn't you leave? Well, certainly ha people did, and half of the German Jews by 1938 had left, including people like Albert Einstein. But it's a lot harder to leave a country than you think. Like, think about right now, wherever you're listening, and I live in the, in the United States right now, and, and let's say I wanted to just leave. It's a lot harder to do than you think, even if going to somewhere like Canada. Like, you have to get you know, a visa and be allowed into the other, the other country. Um, and due to anti-Semitism, countries like the U.S. and others wouldn't take them. And this was actually a huge part of that documentary I watched, U.S. and the Holocaust. Um, like the U.S. and other countries would not take Jewish people or that many Jewish people because of what people claimed is that they would come over to the U.S. and take their jobs. You know, doesn't that sound pretty... Um, pretty much like what we're here right now with politics. So even though people could see the Nazis are dangerous people to the Jewish people, if you were a Jew, um, it, it's not just that easy to leave. And so they were stuck. Uh, and there were Jews who took refuge in, refuge, refuge in countries like Denmark, but then they were ended up killed after Germany invaded Denmark. Um, the you know, originally Germany thought of mass deportation before World War II, but then they eventually went to just murdering people. And they weren't the only country. Romania actually was the second second to Germany in terms of killing Jews, as they had their own, or the Jewish people, they had their own anti-Semitic policy before the war. But it, it's, just, it's, just, it's just a lot harder to say just to leave. And if you watch that documentary I mentioned, um, 
it talks about the plight of the, of the Jewish people trying to get out of Germany. And they couldn't. You know, there's one instance, actually, and I'm kind of going on a tangent here. In that documentary, they talk about these groups of people paid money to get on a ship to go to Cuba to escape um, Europe. And they, they paid money to get a visa to go into Cuba. And, and But then by the time that ship sailed from Germany or Europe to Cuba with thousands of Jewish refugees, they got to Cuba and returned back because the people in Cuba heard, heard that Jewish people were coming and they didn't want them in their country taking their jobs. And, other, and, and prominent, so that's just one example. And prominent people in the U.S. tried to get the U.S. to expand their quota system. They had a quota system back then. You only had a certain amount of people that could come into the U.S., particularly people that were Jewish. And they tried to get Congress to expand, and the American people to expand that quota. But the American people were against it. The American people were wanted actually, they were, they were more apt to want zero immigrants in rather than some. And so the U.S. isn't innocent here in this. Um, they certainly could have allowed more Jewish people in and saved some more people, but they didn't. So it's just not that easy to leave a country. And I want you to think about that in terms of current politics. Not to mention at the time, if you're the U.S., you were still discriminating against the African-American population, and especially in the Jim Crow South, they didn't have rights either. So it's tough to, it is fair to criticize, obviously, the Nazis' racial policies as awful, awful people. But it's not like the U.S. were treating all their people equally um, at, the, at this same time in history as well. Kind of just a few events that, that, that happened um, with the Holocaust. There's a Night of the Broken Glass, which, which is called, which happened in 1938, where almost with 7,500 to 9,000 Jewish shops were destroyed, 1,000 synagogues were destroyed. Germany created ghettos that before expelling them to concentration camps, um, they would put they would concentrate Jews in, in major city ghettos. Warsaw is the most famous, but had almost half a million Jews in it. But it, it was so small that the Warsaw ghetto had 30% of the population and just 2% of the area. To show, and so obviously people would die from disease and other things. Germany actually thought of expelling Jews to French-controlled Madagascar, where they would die due to the rough climate. They couldn't put this into place because the Allies eventually occupied Madagascar. I think people think about the Holocaust, that they think about gas chambers and, and the Jewish people being rounded up and sent to the gas chambers and being told they were showers and being gassed to death, which certainly obviously happened. But there are other deaths that people don't necessarily think about, like being thrown off buildings, buried alive. Um, sometimes victims would have to undress and stand next to a ditch and be shot. Or sometimes they, they would make people lay down on top of corpses in a ditch before they shot them. Again, just a lot of mass shootings. Um, concentration camps were, weren't just about just killing people right away. It was literally working them to death. The average lifespan in a camp was three months. They'd have these things called gas vans sometimes where they would drive Jewish people. Um, they'd put a van and they would pump in carbon monoxide and, and drive away and kill them in the back of the van. 
Um, but yeah, the, the, the Jewish people killed, as I said, represented two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population and one-third of the world's Jewish population. So, so that is, is just, just a quick overview of the Holocaust. Um, again, I, I just don't feel qualified to do an exhaustive review on the Holocaust. And, and I say that out of respect. Because I think if someone is going to do a ex- exhaustive review of the Holocaust, they really need to be an expert. And so I encourage you to read more up on it. My purpose here was to give you just kind of the plain facts. Because the plain facts that I just went through are disturbing. And it should make you angry that people deny that this happened. It was an awful time in history. And, and I hope anybody listening to this who, who might be Jewish or or just anybody listening to this, I, I just want you to know that in the last five or ten minutes I've talked about the Holocaust, I, I tried to do that as respectfully as possible. And I meant obviously no disrespect to anybody or the Jewish people. It was an awful time for them. And it still is an awful time. There's still anti-Semitism in this world. There's still people who deny the Holocaust. That's awful. And as someone who's not Jewish, I just can't imagine having to go through that or had a parent or grandparent or relative go through that. And so I, I'm just, I just, my heart goes out to you. And I just, again, I just want to say it one more time that my hope here with this overview of the Holocaust, I try to do this as respectfully as possible. And just want to say the Holocaust happened. It was awful. It was terrible. And anybody that denies it is just an absolute ignorant idiot. So I don't know how to transition from that heavy of a topic. So we're just going to have to just do that. So we're going to go from the European theater to the, to the Pacific theater now. And that leads us to the Battle of Okinawa, which followed Iwo Jima that we talked about last week. And Okinawa was from April 1st to June 22nd, 1945. And it was the largest and bloodiest battle of the Pacific. Okinawa is about 350 miles um, away from the southern Japanese homeland. Capturing it would give the U.S. Navy a naval base and aircraft base for the potential invasion of Japan. So the U.S. had about 182,000 troops. For this um, invasion, uh, Japan had about 67,000 soldiers, 9,000 the infantry, plus thousands of local Okinawans that they just drafted and they conscripted into service. Now, most of the forces were in the southern part of Okinawa. They pretty much left just a handful of troops in the central and the north. And just like Iwo Jima, the focus was to have a war of attrition and to kind of kill as many Americans as possible to, in hopes of an armistice and an unconditional surrender. They built up heavy defensive positions, including 60 miles of tunnels. So the U.S. started a bombardment on March 25th, which lasted a week, which again was ineffective due to the Japanese taking cover in their tunnels. And the invasion started on April 1st, and the landings were undefended. Um, by the end of the day, 60,000 soldiers made it ashore, and the U.S. captured two airfields. The Marines went north, and the Army went south, and northern Okinawa was cleared pretty quickly and declared secure by April 21st. But again, the Japanese had shifted plans here that they were not trying to stop the invasion uh, or the landings. They were... Uh, they were going to let the Marines come in, let the Army come in, and then pin them down in heavy defensive positions. Now, this kind of leads us to 
Operation Tengo, which happened during the Battle of Okinawa, what happened April 7th. And this was the last major Japanese naval engagement of the Pacific. And we talked about the Battle of Lady, Lady Gulf, which had essentially destroyed the Japanese Navy earlier. The Japanese hadn't planned on using the Navy during the defense of Okinawa, but they felt pressured by the Emperor. And so the Navy decided to use some of their remaining ships, including the largest battleship in the world, the Yamato, for a suicide mission. So the ships would head towards Okinawa and then beach themselves and use their guns to fight the American forces, the big guns, until they were destroyed. And then the men would get off and fight. Now, actually, many Japanese naval commanders were against this mission as they felt it was a waste of resources, including fuel. And eventually, they were convinced to go ahead. Men were given the chance to actually stay behind and not go on this suicide mission, but none did. Um, U.S. intelligence was able to conclude that an attack was coming and were able to prepare for it. And the operation was just a, an absolute disaster for the Japanese. Due to air superiority, the Allies were able to coordinate their attack quite easily. Um, the Yamo, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the, the Yamato <laughs> was severely damaged and the operation was canceled right before it exploded and sunk. And overall, the Japanese lost over 4,000 killed with six ships sunk. The U.S. just lost 97 soldiers with three ships damaged. So Operation Tengo happened on April 7th, a disaster for the Japanese. And then the next day, April 8th, the U.S. actually reached the first defensive fortifications in the south. The southern part of the island was really well protected by several defensive lines, with which were extremely well fortified. And this really just began a two-month-long struggle by the Americans to clear the defense, Japanese from these positions. Um, while the Japanese would have defensive battles during the day, at night they would go on the offensive trying to attack the Americans and organize attacks before retreating to their caves. The U.S. had to deal with immense amounts of rain, which flooded their trenches um, and unburied bodies and led to just an awful stench with maggots all over the place. Just an awful, awful time for the soldiers. But the, the U.S. would slowly but methodically um, defeat the Japanese. And again, it was inevitable they were going to win. It was just about how long it would take and how many would die. And they would, they would slowly work through each defensive position, clear it out, and move on to the next one. Now on June, 20, on June 18th, Lieutenant General Simon Boulevard Buckner um, was killed by artillery fire. He's actually the highest-ranking U.S. officer lost to enemy fire in the war. He died on June 18th, and the U.S. actually secured the island by June 21st. So he died just before the battle was over. So the U.S., again, there was to secure it. Uh, one thing with Okinawa was uh, kamikaze attacks were an integral part of the defense of Okinawa. They weren't new. Kamikaze attacks weren't new, but they were, like I said, a big part of the planning. There were about 1,500 planes that were used in the kamikaze attacks. Um, three ships were, three major ships were hit. The USS Indianapolis um, was hit on March 31st with nine killed. The USS Bunker Hill was hit by two kamikazes on May 11th. Almost 400 were killed. Uh, the USS Enterprise is, is, was actually the most decorated U.S. ship of World War II. Um, they had actually fought in many battles. Pearl Harbor, Midway, 
Guadalcanal, Lady Golf. But anyways, they were damaged twice by kamikazes, once in April, once in May, with 14 killed. So kamikazes were a huge part of the defense. Um, Desmond Doss became famous in this battle. If you've seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge, it's a dramatization of what he did at this battle. But Desmond Doss saved 75 men in this battle. As a, and he's actually wounded four times. Um, he had an arm fracture, and he got shrapnel while he tried to kick a grenade away, and he actually won the Medal of Honor, Desmond Doss did, for saving 75 men in this battle. I really encourage you to um, look, read some stuff on him. That the, the movie isn't quite historically accurate, but, but decently close. So it's it a, it a bloody battle, like I said. Um, 150,000 Okinawans died, which is about half of the pre-war population. The U.S. had 50,000 casualties and about 12,500 people killed. Uh, Japan had 77,000 dead. And this was, but 7,000 surrendered. And it was the first battle of the Pacific with thousands of Japanese soldiers surrendering. As in the past, the Japanese convinced thousands of civilians to have mass suicide. And I talked about one Medal of Honor winner, but there were 24 total Medal of Honor winners at Okinawa. Now, unlike Iwo Jima, Okinawa's strategic value was immense. Um, because... And it's not completely known because the atomic bombs would win the war, but Okinawa was necessary for the invasion of Japan. Um, and the invasion of Japan wouldn't have been possible without taking Okinawa. Um, but there is a belief that Okinawa did help lead the U.S. to use, decide to use the atomic bomb because of the high cost. We talked about last episode of Iwo Jima and it really not being as important as they'd hoped, but Okinawa was immensely important. So at this point in time in June, again, uh, Germany's out of the war. Uh, everybody is preparing for this potential invasion of Japan. Um, but the U.S. just... And, and there's talk the war might last two, three, four years. And the documentary mentions this. You know, as they interview several soldiers who said that they really couldn't, while they were happy about the victory in Europe, they knew it wasn't over yet. And they knew they were probably going to be sent back to the Pacific to finish off Japan. So it was tough for people to be extremely happy because they knew there was still a long war left. And so that brings us to the atomic bomb, which ended up helping to end World War II. Now, the atomic bomb was part of the Manhattan Project, and the Manhattan Project was the project to develop the bomb. Um, it actually employed 130,000 people and cost $2 billion. $2 billion in 1930s and 40s money. So, in 1938, nuclear fission was discovered, which allowed the development of the atomic bomb to be a legit possibility. Now, the U.S. had concerns that the Germans would develop a nuclear bomb first. Again, they had a really good scientific community there in Germany. Like, Albert Einstein was German before he emigrated to the U.S. Now, there's actually a letter that Albert Einstein signed that urged the U.S. to develop their own program. He sent that to FDR. FDR ended up approving the project on, uh, and decided to coordinate with Churchill and Britain. Now, in 1941, the Britain was actually further along than the U.S., and so they actually didn't want to collaborate. But by 1943, 
The U.S. pulled ahead in research, and then the U.S. didn't actually want to collaborate with Britain. Eventually, they would actually start coordinating in 1943 towards this atomic bomb. Now, Los Alamos is probably the most famous location um, that was uh, used in part of uh, the um, development of the atomic bomb. But there are at least 19 locations. And there are big cities like Chicago, but also small college towns like Ames, Iowa, which housed Iowa State University. Now, it was completely secret, obviously. You don't want people to talk about an atomic bomb. And so even though I said there was 130,000 people employed by the Manhattan Project, only a few dozen people actually knew the true meaning of the Manhattan Project and what they were trying to do. And only a couple thousand people actually knew that atoms were involved. Many workers didn't even know what the purpose of what they were doing. For example, one worker later said their job was to hold an instrument to uniforms and listen for clicking sounds and note, and note if they're clicking sounds. Later, she learned it was a Geiger counter measuring radiation. But they didn't know that. People were just told, hey, do this job. Don't tell anybody. We were not, it's, and they were told it was important, but they weren't told what. Uh, and disclosing any secrets was punishable by 10 years in prison and $10,000 in fines. Now, many people that were involved um, in this project, the ones that didn't know really the purpose of this, their morale actually was really low because they had worked so hard for so long, but they weren't told why. Um, so to combat this, actually, some of these places actually created extensive intramural sports leagues to help with morale. I found that interesting. Despite the secrecy of the Manhattan Project, many Soviet spies penetrated the project. And while historians consider the Soviets would have probably eventually figured out how to make an atomic bomb anyways, the spying probably saved them one or two years. The most notable spy was Klaus. Um, yeah, I should have double-checked how to pronounce his name. I think Fuchs, F-U-C-H-S. He actually became a member of the Communist Party in 1932 while he was in Germany. He ended up fleeing, fleeing to Great Britain, became one of their lead scientists, and then moved to the U.S. and became a collaborator on the project. So he had access to top secrets, and he passed on info the process with the bombs were made up to the Soviet Union. And within a year of the U.S. making a hydrogen bomb, the USSR made one. So it's considered that his uh, secrets that he sold really helped the Soviet program. Yeah, he was actually caught in 1950 and served nine years in prison. He actually ended up going to East Germany and dying in 1988. But obviously the Manhattan Project was successful and they were trying to make an atomic bomb before Germany could make one because it was worried that if Germany could make an atomic bomb potentially and drop it on the U.S., they could uh, turn the war in their favor. Now, on July 16th, 1945, was what is called the Trinity Test and really the beginning of the atomic age because um, it was determined to test the bomb before dropping it. And so they ended up testing it and the bomb exploded with 25 uh, kilotons of TNT or at least the equivalent of that. Robert Oppenheimer, who was one of the lead scientists, said, Now I am become death. The destroyer of words, quoting that famous quote. Now, the Trinity test was obviously noticed by civilians. <laughs> the cover story was that it was an explosion of ammo magazines, and it became public after the Hiroshima bomb. And it is now actually a national uh, historic 
site, um, which is in the Trinity, which is in New Mexico, the Trinity test site. So with the Trinity test being successful, that leads us to the actual atomic bombings. Um, and there are five targets that are potential targets to be picked. Um, all the targets were three miles in diameter, which would create effective damage. And they also want a target that was unlikely to be firebombed bombed by the Allies by August 1945. Now, the U.S. and Allies have been firebombing various cities in Japan trying to, you know, obviously uh, break morale in Japan and try to get them to surrender. Um, one of the towns, Kyoto, was actually taken off the list um, by Henry Stimson. Um, due to its historic and cultural significance. He actually had honeymoon there. Um, but a lot... Uh, even though it was kind of a valuable military target, and he was... Uh, Stimson was the Secretary of War at the time. Um, eventually, he convinced Truman to have it removed, and Nagasaki was put in its place. And um, Now, Britain and, and Canada had to give consent... Um, before the U.S. dropped um, a bomb, an atomic bomb. And they actually gave consent, though, um, to these atomic bombings. And Potsdam, uh, at the Potsdam Conference, uh, the Allies declared that without surrender, Japan would be devastated, uh, although they didn't actually mention the atomic bomb. So on August 6, 1945, uh, it was determined to bomb Hiroshima, Hiroshima was the headquarters of Japan's Second Army, which was tasked with the defense of southern Japan. Um, it was a key port as well. The population was approximately 350,000 people. Uh, it was about a six-hour flight for the crew, and they dropped the bomb at 8.15. It, it took 44 seconds to fall. It dropped 16 killer, kilotons of energy, which was actually considered inefficient. It only had 1.7% of its material fissioning. Despite the fact it was inefficient, it was obviously massively destructive. You had 70,000, 80,000 people were killed by the blast. 70,000 were injured. Five square miles were destroyed. 70% of the buildings were destroyed. Um, 12 American POWs were actually killed in the blast or executed thereafter. Now, the closest survivor is actually someone who's just 170 meters away in a concrete basement. But just absolutely devastating act, weapon of war that probably couldn't even be conceived at the time by a normal civilian or a soldier who didn't know those capabilities. So after that first bomb, Truman announced that if Japan did not surrender, they, can, they may expect a reign of ruin. Civilians actually evacuated large towns, but the Japanese still didn't surrender. They concluded the U.S. could have only had one or two bombs at the time, and they decided just to wait out until the U.S. was empty of bombs and then continue to endure. Now, on August 9th, the USSR declared war on Japan and invaded Manchuria. Manchuria. So now they had a war with the USSR and potential atomic bombs that were going to be dropped. On August 9th, the U.S. Um, decided to drop a second bomb. Now, while it ended up being on Nagasaki, it wasn't the first target. First target um, was uh, determined not to work because it was covered with 70% clouds. So it was decided to bomb Nagasaki. 
Kokura was the original town. Nagasaki was a large seaport with many industrial and production businesses. There's about 263,000 people there. They dropped the bomb on August 9th. It went off at 11.02. This one released 21 kilotons of energy. So it's more powerful than Hiroshima, but it produced less damage because its effects were confined to the hillsides. The bomb was off tar target. At least 35 to 40,000 were killed, plus 60,000 injured. So just devastating destruction. The U.S. thought they got another bomb ready in August, plus three more in September and three more in October. It was still split. Okay, so the war cabinet was split. It, there was those that wanted to move on, and there were those that wanted to surrender. And eventually, Emperor Hirohito decided to surrender and announced this decision on August 15th. It was actually an attempted coup by some military leaders trying to stop his surrender. Um, but Japan eventually to, decided to surrender. And so instead of invading Japan, Japan catapulted, catapulted, captured, that's not the right word. <laughs> Japan surrendered in August. Now, 39% of Hiroshima and 32% of Nagasaki um, were killed of those populations. In all, between 130 and 230,000 were killed in the bombings. Now, as of March of this year, there are 120,000 survivors that are still alive. And there's actually an estimated 160 double survivors, those that survived both um, bombs. And there was one survivor, Mr. Yamaguchi, um, who actually died in 2010 at the age of 93, who survived both bombings. That's just incredible how that happened. Now, the U.S. was the only country to have nuclear bombs for four years until the USSR developed one. And then again, the U.S. developed the hydrogen bomb, which is a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. Currently, there are only nine countries who are considered to have nuclear weapons, whether confirmed or rumored. And that is the U.S., Russia, Britain, France, China, India, Pakistan, North Korea, and Israel. But we haven't had a nuclear bomb used on another country since these bombings. So... While um, these bombings did end the war, VJ Day, Victory in Japan Day, there is debate to this day about whether or not the atomic bomb was necessary to end the war. Some actually consider it a crime against humanity. Again, my grandpa was a World War II vet. He has passed away, but I, um, I remember talking to a vet at his funeral, and he was adamant it was necessary to end the war. And my guess is that most vets feel that, felt that same way, and, and those still living probably do. Now, the reasons for dropping the bombs, Winston Churchill said dropping the bombs would save a million U.S. lives and a quarter million British lives. Truman's advisors told him there would be anywhere from 100,000 to a million casualties if they tried to invade Japan. On top of that, Japanese casualties are estimated to be in the millions, up to 5 million. Maybe another million or two deaths in, in, in Vietnam due to famine. It also liberated millions of POWs and slave laborers. And the POWs were told they were going to be executed during an invasion. Other millions would have starved to death. Uh, like I said, Soviet and the Soviet Union declared war in Japan. And that they would have killed more people. Um, it was considered part of a total war. As the lines were blurred between who was a military person and a civilian. Because again, 
Um, the, Japan had been training their civilians to fight for the defense of Japan. And it was considered, civilians were considered by the U.S. military, actual military targets. Emperor Hirohito said later he understood it and said it was part of the war. One of the Japanese pilots who led the attack on Pearl Harbor later said the atomic bombings were justified because of how fanatical the Japanese people were. The Japanese military leaders um, were people who refused to die to surrender and again expected all to die for the emperor. And again, like I said, some people still want to fight on even after those two bombs. There was a concern that the Japanese were going to create their own atomic program of their own. And this would, and it, by dropping the atomic bombs and getting them out of the war, this would have stopped them. And lastly, Germany ended up being divided after World War II. I didn't, I didn't mention that. In the East and West Germany, where the Soviets controlled the Eastern part and the Allies controlled the West, there was concern the USSR would do this in Japan too, which would be, you know, you'd create like a North and South Japan or something like that. So those are the reasons for dropping it. And really the main reason is, yes, people died in the bombings, but it saved millions more from dying. That's one of the main reasons why. Reasons against dropping the bomb is that there were some that felt it was military un militarily unnecessary and that it would have been better to blockade Japan and continue to firebomb Japan, although firebombing actually killed more people than the atomic bombs. Eisenhower later said he thought it was unnecessary. General MacArthur, Admiral Leahy, Admiral Nimitz, and others thought it was unnecessary because they felt, again, Japan was already defeated. Others say that the Soviet declaration of war was actually the straw that broke the camel's back because Japan thought the USSR would stay out of the war, and they thought Japan would surrender once the Soviet Union declared war. Some people consider this war crimes against humanity. Einstein was an early critic, even though he was signed that initial letter to push for an atomic program. One scientist said, imagine if the Germans dropped a bomb on a city like Rochester and Buffalo. Wouldn't, and he said, wouldn't we try them for, as war criminals? Uh, people consider it state terrorism as part of the atomic bomb, as part of its purpose was to shock Japan into surrendering. Some say it was immoral. Some say the second bombing was especially unnecessary as it took three days, after, as it was just three days after the first before Japan could really comprehend what happened at Hiroshima. Some have argued that Japan would have eventually surrendered because of an eventual collapse of the economy and possible revolution. Um, in 1945, 85% supported the bombings. And in 2015, only 55% supported the bombings. And as you can suspect, support is really high for the older generations. Uh, younger generations are more against um, having dropped the bomb. Where I stand, I don't know where to stand on that. I, I think it's tough for me to have an opinion on that when I didn't live at the time. Again, my, my, the, 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 listening to people... Again, at my grandpa's funeral, that vet telling me he thought it was important. I can understand that perspective. I can also understand the perspective of it might have been, you know, might not have been necessary. But either way, it happened at the end of the war. An unfortunate side note from the atomic bomb is the USS Indianapolis. Now, I just talked about them. They were damaged by a kamikaze during the Battle of Okinawa. But it, they were fixed, and they actually delivered the bomb. Um, they did not know what was that they were delivering the atomic bomb. They were told they had a special package and they had to deliver it. So, um, 
the U.S. So the USS USS Indianapolis delivered it, and what's interesting is they didn't know what was in their package, but it held actually half the world's supply of uranium <laughs> in that package. Um, they dropped the supplies off at Tinian, and then were sent to go to Guam. But on their way back from dropping uh, the, the the material for the atomic bomb on July 30th, 1945, they were sunk by a Japanese submarine. And 3,000 or 300 of the 1,200 soldiers died in the sinking. Unfortunately for them, um, only 300 of the 900 that went into the water survived the sinking because um, they spent three and a half days in the water, which many were killed due to exposure to the elements, lack of food, water. Some killed themselves, but mostly because of shark attacks. And it's considered the most shark attacks on humans in history. Um, so that's what they kind of, if a lot of people have heard of the USS Indianapolis, heard of it because they've delivered the atomic bomb and were sunk and many of their soldiers were killed by sharks. Uh, they were in the water for three and a half days because the Navy did not know about the sinking. When the ship did not show up to Guam, there was a failure to report it. There were three distress calls that were heard. One was ignored because one commander was drunk. Another was ordered not to be disturbed, and another thought it was a Japanese trap. Now, the captain survived the sinking, and he was actually court-martialed for this, which was controversial. Chester Nimitz, the admiral of the Navy, remitted his sentence and restored him to active duty, and he retired in 1949. But he eventually um, killed himself, not Nimitz, but the, the captain of the Indianapolis. I don't know why I did not put his name on here. Give me a minute while I, I, I um, look him up. Um, sorry about this. I apologize. Um, let's look at, ah, Captain Charles McVeigh III was the captain. But because of guilt, he actually killed himself in, in 1968. Um, but he was actually exonerated in 2001. And a lot of people feel like it was unfair to blame him. For the fact that his ship was sunk. And actually, um, the wreck was found in 2017. And as of recording of this podcast, there is one survivor left. So, just another awful thing that happened in the war. But can you imagine that the USS Indianapolis was sunk before they delivered the uranium in the, in the atomic bomb? Um, I still think they would have had the material for the second bomb, but that would have... Um, been a, kind of a, an interesting what if in World War II history. But, but anyways, um, so by August now, Germany is out of the war. Japan's out of the war. Where the war is essentially over. And um, after six long years, um, Germany, Japan, and Italy are defeated. So I want to... Uh, we're getting towards the end of this podcast, and this is a longer episode. I, I, I've been trying to keep these to an hour lately. This is probably going to go over an hour, so I just really thank you for listening to this still. But the war is over, and just a couple of things I want to, other things I want to talk about, and that is what would have happened had there not been the atomic bomb. I want not not just the atomic bomb. But there's two operations that were planned potentially for 1945 and beyond that could have happened but didn't happen because of the end of world war ii and the first one is operation downfall 
And Operation Downfall, Downfall was the plan for the invasion of Japan. Uh, excuse me. And I just find this whole plan a huge, fascinating what if. Um, because that would have changed history in a number of ways. So again, Operation Downfall was the invasion of Japan plan. It would have been the largest amphibious operation in history, more than D-Day. Now, this plan was being made even while the atomic bomb was being worked on. Why? Because only a few people knew about the Manhattan Project. Again, not even President Truman knew about it when he was vice president. Um, a lot of military planners made this plan with the intention of using it because they didn't know about the atomic bomb. General MacArthur ended up would be the overall commander, although there was some bickering between the Navy and Army about who would be in charge, but it would be MacArthur. The Allies wanted to get Japan to surrender no more than one year after Germany, as there was concern that morale would drop on the home front if the war dragged on, which is exactly what Japan was hoping for. The problem with invading Japan was its geography. There wasn't many beaches available for landings, and it was isolated from other land. The Allied planners expected everyone in Japan, including all the civilians, to fight and defend the homeland. So everybody knew, <laughs> knew it was going to be um, an intense, long battle. So there was two phases of Operation Downfall. And that, the first one was Operation Olympic, which was the invasion of Kyushu, which is the, uh, the southernmost main island of uh, Japan. Um, that was, this was to begin on X day, which would be November 1st, 1945, against the southernmost island of the Japanese homelands. The goal of this operation was to take just the southern third of, of uh, Kyushu for a staging area for the main attack in the next phase. And so Okinawa would be used to attack Kyushu. So they were going to take part of Kyushu and then um, use that part, that island, to invade the rest of mainland Japan. They were going to invade the island at three different points, over 35 different landing beaches. 700 soldiers were set aside for it. Once Operation Olympic was successful, that was going to bring on Operation Coronet which was the invasion of Honshu, which was to begin on Y-Day, March 1st, 1946. So again, you're looking at a four-month span between these two operations. Now, Honshu is the largest island, which is where Tokyo resides. 45 divisions were to be used, compared to 12 for D-Day. The goal was to take Tokyo and then move up and, and take Nagano. And you had approximately 1.2 million soldiers set aside for it. It would be the largest military operation in U.S. history, for sure. Now, the problem with this was that the Japanese had their own plan as well for the defense of Japan. And this was going to make taking Japan even harder than the U.S. realized. So, again, the Japanese knew they could not win the war, but they hoped to make the cost so high that the Allies would go for an armistice. I've said that many times. The Japanese were able to deduce pretty easily where the attack would be because of the geography. And they're actually helped by the fact that Okinawa took so long because they knew it would delay the attack until 1946. 
Um, as I said, the Allies expected the entire population to defend. The Japanese called this the glorious death of 100 million. There was 10,000 kamikaze planes that were going to be available, plus hundreds of suicide boats with 1,200 suicide divers. The plan called for an all-out defense of Kyushu and not leave much in reserve for Tokyo. Their goal was to stop the invasion at the beach. If the Allies could not get Kyushu, they couldn't invade the rest of Japan. They had 900,000 people, Japanese soldiers, in Kyushu. The Allies thought the Japanese only had 350,000. So they vastly underestimated how many Japanese soldiers were there. The Allies did follow troop building throughout 1945. And they started to become alarmed enough to start to consider um, changes to their plan. There was a thought of maybe invading a different island, even going straight for Tokyo. Uh, General MacArthur thought Japanese numbers were exaggerated, and MacArthur did in that the plans did not need change. Admirals Ernest King and Chester Nimitz were actually going to oppose the invasion before it was officially implemented, which would obviously have caused an issue in the government. Um, after the atomic bombs were dropped and before Japan surrendered, there was talk about using atomic bombs in the invasion, which, of course, they, they had no knowledge of fallout. They actually planned on dropping atomic bombs and having the soldiers go through those areas <laughs> to move on. They, that would have killed thousands of Allied soldiers, obviously, so thank goodness that didn't happen. Now, unbeknownst to the U.S., Russia was preparing for an invasion of the northern island of Japan starting in 1945. And that's just an interesting thing because, again, Japan had put all their forces in the south. If Russia invaded from the north, they would have had a much easier path and probably could have taken Tokyo earlier. So it would have been interesting to see how that would have played out. The big thing with Operation Downfall is just the high projected casualties. And again, this is the big reason for the justification of the atomic bomb. Various military sources projected 200 to 500,000 casualties. Non-military estimates put the casualties in the millions. And these projections were when they still were underestimating Japanese strength. So it's highly likely that there would have been casualties in the millions. Those projections were so high that 500,000 Purple Heart medals were made in advance for this invasion which was obviously canceled by the atomic bombs, they still, to this day, almost 80 years later, have not been used up yet. It's crazy. So that was Operation Downfall. I think one of the great what-ifs in, in, in history, military history, taking out the moral issue with the atomic bomb, it's good that that invasion didn't happen because that would have been just, again, millions of more people would have died on both sides. So that's the first operation I want to talk about. The second one is called Operation Unthinkable, which not many people know about. This was actually created by Britain in May of 1945 by the order of Winston Churchill to outline a British attack on the Soviet Union, which this showed that despite the fact that the USSR and Britain and the US were allies in World War II, it was clear that Britain and the U.S. would be on one side post-World War II and the USSR is on the other. So Britain made this plan as a contingency plan in case they felt they needed to attack the USSR post-war. Can you imagine that for a minute? Can you imagine the U.S. and 
in Britain, winning the war against Germany in Japan, and then attacking one of their allies that won the war. Well, it makes sense, especially since we know what happened with the Soviet Union after that. I can't imagine trying to explain that to the population. Now, there are two plans. There's an offensive plan, and the goal was to, quote, impose the will of the U.S. and British Empire on Russia. Essentially, they wanted a square deal for Poland. Poland again had been invaded. That really triggered the beginning of the World War II, but Russia wanted to keep Poland for themselves. Um, so the, the Britain was concerned with the number of forces the USSR had in Europe at the end of the, the war, um, and they did not think Stalin could be trusted. He posed a threat to Western Europe. Operation Unthinkable would start on July 1st, 1945, with a surprise attack on the middle of the Soviet lines in Dresden with 47 U.S. and British divisions. This was deemed unfeasible for a number of reasons, a lot of, mostly because of the fact that the USSR had number superiority and the fact that complete surprise was needed for success. And if that, and uh, if victory wasn't made by winter, it would become a long war, kind of like what happened when Germany invaded Russia. So that was scrapped. And the second plan um, was a defensive battle, which, um, or a defensive plan where the goal was to ensure the security of the British islands in the event of war with Russia. Churchill was concerned the U.S. forces were relocating um, for the eventual invasion of Japan. And he was concerned that when the, the U.S. did that, that would leave Europe open for the USSR. The report declared that if the U.S. focused on Japan, that Britain's odds would be fanciful. Essentially, they'd be at the mercy of the, of the Soviet Union. So the focus was on using air superiority. Um, but, you know, in the end, it didn't happen for obvious reasons. And the U.S. and Britain even had discussions in 1946 about a war with Russia. Um, but the operations weren't implemented. The plans are actually secret until 1998 when they came out. But it's obviously clear why this didn't happen. After, after you know, again, publicly supporting war with Germany and Japan and Italy for six years and then winning that war, even though so the Soviet Union posed a threat, there's just no way you could justify a war with another country. And, and, and a country, quite, quite frankly, that would have been extremely tough to beat because they had a large army. And I even think from the Soviet Union standpoint, my guess is they wouldn't want a war too. They had just gone through war and they had more people killed in the Soviet Union than any other country in the war, both civilians and military. So even though these, these powers, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, were positioning themselves to be the two superpowers post-World War II, there's just no way that they were had an appetite to do another war. And that's kind of why you didn't see another war, a world war during the Cold War, because was there really another appetite for that? But anyways, I just, I just found those two plans interesting. I want to share that with you. So that brings us to the end of not just this episode, but the six parts of the Ken Burns series, The War. Um, I really hoped you enjoyed that. Um, and, uh, I hope you learned something. I really enjoyed doing this. Like I said, I've done a lot of sports ones. It was nice to do a non-sport one. And, um, but yeah, if this is your first episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to the other five episodes for the war. But also, again, this is episode 39. 
So I have done podcast series on Ken Burns' baseball, Ken Burns' Civil War, The Last Dance, on the USFL, on the Miami Air Hurricane Dynasty of the 1980s. I encourage you to go back and listen to all those. I keep them all up, and uh, I would appreciate you listening. Again, this is, I don't make any money off of this. This is a, just a fun passion project for me. And I also appreciate it if you follow me on Mastodon, at DocTillMemore, at Mastodon.World. Come hit me up, follow me, and I will follow you back. Um, but yeah, World, World War II, uh, probably the greatest, most important event of, of the 20th century. Something that was a culmination of decades and decades and decades of political history and shaped not the rest of the 20th century, even to an extent today. Just a devastating war um, that, that um, you know, reached all corners of the world. And again, would spawn more proxy wars like the Korean War and the Vietnam War as well. But uh, I, I just hope as we get to the point where we have fewer and fewer veterans that are still alive, I hope that um, we just continue to remember this war and certainly how we fought for freedom, but how brutal it was and the importance to remember this in our veterans. So I really appreciate you listening to this. Um, not 100% sure what my next topic would be. I kind of have an idea. I'm thinking about staying in, in kind of the history realm for the next one and staying away from, from sports. I don't know how long it's going to be to my next episode. Um, my guess is two or three weeks. Uh, I know this was a quicker turnaround with my last couple episodes. I've just been kind of excited to not get to the end of it, but but um, continue to learn more about World War II. And certainly going from the last episode of this one, I kind of was looking forward to wrapping it up, and I mean that in a good way. So I'm just kind of rambling now. But anyways, thank you so much for listening. Um, Again, follow me on Mastodon at DocTellMeMore.Mastodon at DocTellMeMore at Mastodon.World. And uh, yeah, just uh, thank you so much for listening. And I will, until next time, I will talk to you later.